Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for a vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again in the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those, who, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudgingly my, or begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. All right, welcome again. I'm excited to walk through this parable with you. We've been walking through parables this entire summer. And this is a really good one. And as I was reading the passage this week, it took me back to when I was 23. Um, I graduated college. I took my first position at a church, Avondale Estates Baptist Church in Atlanta, and I was the family pastor there. And coming out of college, I'll be honest, I was very proud. I was very egotistical. I thought I had everything figured out. I was ready to take on the world, take on church. I thought I, I knew everything being a pastor was about. And then I met a man named Mike. That first year of pastoring, this man came and he knocked on the door of the church and I met Mike and over the next two months of spending time with him, he would have a dramatic effect on my life, specifically the way that I viewed people, the way that I thought about what ministry is truly all about and about grace. Stepping away for that for a minute, I also started to think about something that I wrestle with, and I think a lot of times we all can seemingly wrestle with, uh, maybe you can relate this ongoing tension and construct to do more and get more, to be more and to have more, because this is really how it works. Think about it. You work a job, you get paid. You work hard, you get what you deserve. You prove yourself, maybe you get a better position, you get more authority, you get a higher rank, you get a higher standing, you get more respect. This is how society works. Now, we may not realize is that there is a psychological 
and relational effect this actually has on us when it comes to all areas of our life. That it affects the way we think, it affects the way that we act, it affects the way that we live. We develop this internal construct of what's fair and what's not fair. What I deserve, what I don't deserve, what they deserve, what they don't deserve. And this tension, it begins at a very young age and it stays with us throughout the rest of our life. And even if it doesn't come out of our mouth, it's this inward tension of our hearts. Because we live in a society that operates this way. So what's the big deal? Why is this a big deal? It makes sense, right? Well, here's why it's a big deal. Because this is not how God's economy operates. And this is actually a really good thing, as we're going to see in this parable today. So if you would, pray with me, and then we're going to walk through this fantastic parable of Jesus. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. I pray that you'd speak to each of us in this room. I I seriously pray that. We all come in with different things today. Some of us come in with a ton of baggage, with uh, things that we've hidden away in the closet of our life that we don't want anybody to see, things that we are wrestling with, fighting against. Some of us come in just incredibly tired and worn out and frustrated. Some of us come in anxious, thinking about a million things that have to be done today or this week. Some of us come in joyful and excited. Some of us come in restless and wondering and wandering. So God, would you just meet us here as a faithful father? Jesus, would you meet us here as a faithful friend? Spirit, would you move through us and in us as a helper? Reveal what's in our heart. Jesus, thank you. Would you meet us in this place? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's jump right in. Here's what it says at the very beginning of this passage. You just heard Butch wonderfully read. It says, for the kingdom of heaven, it's like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, go into the vineyard. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out. And he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So what we see in this parable, it's pretty straightforward, is we see this agreement between a landowner and some day laborers who are looking for work. And they agree to work for a denarius a day, essentially a day's wage. And it's a fair price. And so he sends them out in the field and they start working. And then he goes back and he finds more workers because apparently he wanted to be generous. And so he hires them and he sends them back. And this continues to happen all the way up until the 11th hour, literally the last hour of work. And he sends them into the field to work. Now, the first group, they agreed on the payment of a day's wage. But everybody that follows, they are simply relying on the landowner to do what's right and what's fair. That's it. They probably didn't expect to get that much, if we're being honest. And so here's what happens. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, here's what they received. A denarius. That's phenomenal. Imagine showing up that last hour to your shift. 
And it's like, hey, check it out. I'm going to give you a full day. You're like, oh my goodness, maybe I should show up the last hour every day, right? You're excited. They expected to go home with nothing and they get a full day's wage. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. (laughs) This makes sense. We see in verse 8, evening comes, probably around 6 p.m. These are long 12-hour days, scorched heat. It's not easy work. It's manual labor. And so the owner starts paying them last to first. And obviously, when the people who showed up first see that the person who showed up last is paid a full day's wage, they get excited. They get giddy. They're like, oh my goodness, they get a full day's wage? We'll get at least 10, maybe even more than that. It's going to be amazing. But in a twist... Here's what happens. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. This is where things take a twist. And even in our own hearts, if we're being honest, we're like, yeah, that's jacked up. It's not fair. It's not right. Like, that shouldn't have happened, right? And I, I totally get this. When I was in college, uh, I did an internship one summer at a church, and I also worked for my brother. And my brother in Georgia was looking at potentially buying a septic tank company. So you know who he sent to work in the heat of the summer with a 70-year-old man named Haas? I don't even think he had a last name. I just called him Haas and started to stay out of his way. He sent me. He said, hey, go work. Check it out. See if it's a good company. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And at the end of the first week, Haas paid me $94. And not $94 for that day. $94 for the 40-hour work week. $2.35 an hour, right? Haas was not a person who followed the rules, especially the uh, minimum wage rule. And that's what I received. And I get it. I was furious. This isn't fair. This isn't right. You can relate. We can relate with the person who showed up and they worked all day and they're upset and they're angry. As Cody said this week when we were reading this as a uh, staff and it was good and it's right, he said, this obviously isn't meant to point to good business practices. (laughs) And he's right. But what are parables again? These are earthly stories with a deeper heavenly meaning. So what is Jesus really trying to get at here by sharing this parable. To understand that, we have to look at this background. Stick with me here. In the previous section, he says this line. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And everything hinges on understanding and not missing this. In the previous chapter, a rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in this crowd listening are three groups. There's the crowd that was following, that was simply mesmerized, interested. There were his disciples, and then there were the Pharisees, these religious leaders who were only following because they wanted to test Jesus. They wanted to trip him up. They did not like what he was saying. They did not like how he was being countercultural. And Jesus tells this rich young man, he says, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And what happens? This rich young man walks away dismayed because he had so much. And Jesus says, I tell you, it will be harder for the wealthy, for the rich to find their way into heaven than fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. And the disciples are like, what? And they're completely floored. But why were they floored by this? Because they were still thinking through a cultural mindset that said, if you're wealthy, if you have more, if you've done more, if you're good enough, these are the people the Pharisees have told us will get the best place in the kingdom. 
And so if this rich young man is gonna have a challenging time and he's walking away, then what about me, a fisherman? I have no hope. Because there was this societal construct that placed people on different levels. And the Pharisees had built this and they loved it because it's what they used to rule over people. If you do enough, if you give enough, if you look the part, if you say the right things, if you avoid breaking the law, then you get this from God. Then you are this much more loved. You're this much more holy, right? And so Jesus sees that the disciples don't fully grasp this. They don't fully see what's going on. And he assures them that what's impossible with man is possible with God. And essentially what he does here is he creates a paradigm shift. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. This sets the context of this parable. Within this context, we have two dynamics at play. We have the way that God sees us and others juxtaposed, set against the way that the world sees us and others. And this passage, I'll just tell you right off the base, it's often misinterpreted. It's often just looked at on the surface and it looks like it might be about who became a Christian early and those who came late and the ones who were early and the ones who were faithful more and did all of this, they should get more. That's actually not what it's about. It's about something much more deeper than that. It's not about who showed up first and who showed up last. Here's what it's about. It's, who, it's about who God shows up for. It's about rules versus relationship and generosity versus judgment. Here's what's going to bring this home. If you're wondering how to connect the dots here, this is important context. In the Old Testament, if you love the Old Testament, here you go. Old Testament prophets sometimes spoke of Israel as God's vineyard. You see this in Jeremiah, you see this in Isaiah. So when Jesus, picture this, get in the mind of a listener that knows the Old Testament, when Jesus begins to speak of a landowner hiring idle day laborers for his vineyard, the listeners would have automatically connected this thought with God urging individuals, especially those on the margins of society, to come and join his people to come and be a part of the family. These people, like the desperate day laborers who everyone else in society would pass over, who everyone else would look past, would look down on, reaffirming what they already believed about themselves. I am less. I'm not worth it. I don't fit in. I don't know that I'm even lovable. And this was my new friend, Mike. This is exactly where I found Mike when he knocked on the door that day. And when he came in, he had his head down. And I don't even think he was fully aware of what he needed. He just knew he needed something. His life took a dark turn. He lost his marriage. He forfeited his relationship with his kids. And somehow he made his way from New Orleans to Atlanta. He went down a dark path of addiction. He was losing his health. Consequently, he lost all of his teeth. And he was living under a tarp, a street across from the church. And he came knocking on that door that day, seeking something, because he had nothing. He literally told me once during those early conversations, he said, I'm simply counting down the days until life takes me or until I take my own life. So over the next two weeks, as this young kid, I tried to make it my mission to try and help Mike in any way that I could. 
I helped him fill out papers for a new social security card, drove him around Atlanta to the unemployment office, to the DMV to get an ID card, to the dentist to get fitted for new teeth, to the temporary housing office to get him off the street. And Mike and I ate an unworldly amount of hot dogs in Atlanta as we would go to restaurant after restaurant sharing meals together. That's all he wanted to eat, and I was totally cool with it. And we'd talk about life, and we'd talk about his past, and we'd talk about Braves baseball. We'd talk about anything and everything in the hopes of simply showing Mike that someone's listening. You're not a throwaway. Your past doesn't define you. You're not worthless. Even if you think that about yourself, even if everybody else tells you that, you were meant for more. And I will never forget about three weeks later on a Friday morning, Mike knocks at the door and he's knocking incessantly. And I can't tell you, I've never seen a bigger smile than when I opened that door and I saw Mike's joy-filled face as he wanted to show off his brand new teeth. Finally feeling some semblance of maybe worth. And then a week later, I took Mike to church with me. But stepping for a minute back into this passage, there's a key line that we can't miss here from the first hour workers, the faithful workers, right? They showed up, they did the right thing. There's nothing wrong with that. The ones who showed up early, they followed the rules, they did all of these things. They say this line, they say to the owner, you have made them equal to us. There is now a separation of relationship. There's me over here who's worthy and there's them the ones who showed up last. And with this, Jesus puts on his gloves and he takes out his scalpel and he starts to do heart surgery. We have two groups here. We have those who believe they deserved more and we have the group who knew they deserved less. And Jesus speaks simultaneously to both. Maybe you can relate with the first group. I'll tell you right off the bat, I can. I like what's fair. I like what's right. I like what makes sense on paper. I love it. And I get it. They say, this isn't fair. I deserve more. I showed up. I sacrifice. I serve. I show up to church. I've gone to church my whole life. I grew up in it. I read the Bible. I pray. I fight against sin. I try to follow your word. I give 20%, not even 10%. I'm respected. People look to me. I'm a leader. I do all the right things, the things that you've asked me to do. I'm faithful, and yet you give me this. This is especially difficult and challenging seasons of our life where we feel like we're being faithful and we're following and yet things don't work out the way that we hoped they would. We're in a period of waiting or we're in a period of hardship or we're in a period of challenge and this gets incredibly difficult when the faithful followers watch those who we don't believe are as faithful start to get the things that we really want. I can totally relate with this. Looking around when all I wanted to do was be a dad And everybody else is getting pregnant. Everybody else is having kids. And some of them don't even want to be parents yet. And I'm like, maybe we can work something out. Um, And you feel that tension. And I get it. And with that, though, something shifts in our hearts. Something very dangerous shifts. It starts to affect the way that we actually see other people. It starts to affect the way that we trust in God's decision-making ability it starts to dramatically affect the way that we have eyes for those around us. But I get it, because on paper it looks right. But here's an unavoidable truth. When I say, when we say, within our hearts, I deserve more, we are simultaneously and often, most often, unintentionally saying, they deserve less. Why would they get what I get? 
I've done this. I am this. I should have more. See, our capacity to see with love and act with love towards others is directly related to the way we see ourselves. How do we get here? Well, like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the first hour workers, we can become all about the rules and we start to miss the relationship. It's easier than we think to develop this contractual relationship with God which, where it's the more I do, the more I get, and if I get more, that means I am more. And I'll just tell you straight up, this is tough. It's a tension. It's a reality. It's something for us to all wrestle with no matter what age you are because this is the way our society works. See, the Pharisees built their entire man-made religious power structure on this. If you do the right thing, say the right thing, follow the law, show up, give the right amount, God will love you more. Uh, He will accept you more. You are holier. You are on a higher tier. And Jesus comes and he rips that all apart and he says, that's not me. That is not me. That's not my character. That's not my heart. Let me show you exactly who I am. And so I took Mike to church the next Sunday. And uh, the church that we were at, we had a food pantry and we also had a clothing pantry. And so a couple days before, we take Mike to the clothing pantry and I said, pick out whatever you want, man. Let's get you some clothes, whatever you feel comfortable in. And so Mike picks out a t-shirt, it's clean, picks out some jeans and we roll up into church on that Sunday. And it was no one's fault. I, I say this with all sincerity. People were just not used to Mike's showing up at this church. And so people didn't really know exactly how to react, or uh, I, I could tell some people were looking at Mike, and, and Mike could feel it, just like eyes on him. And so we sit there in the service, and, and about five, ten minutes in, I can see Mike just getting kind of twitchy, uncomfortable. And a few minutes after that, he says, I just can't be here. And so he gets up, and he walks out, and I walk out with him, and we just talk outside of the doors of this church. And I say, Mike, you can be here. And he said, no, no I just don't belong here. <laughs> this is not the place I belong. Uh, He said, you know my story. Like, this is is not where I belong. This is for them. It's not for me. This is what Mike thought. This is what Mike believed. This is what had been pushed into Mike and his very being. Now, what I'm about to say next, I want to preface. (laughs) It's going to sound a little weird at first. I worked at a country club during high school. It's a great place, great work, great people. What I'm about to say is, is no offense against country clubs. So please, if you're a part of DI Country Club, don't feel like you need to leave here and like revoke your membership. That is not what this is about. But hear this and agree with me on this. Please agree on this. We have to be so careful not to make Christianity and the church into an elite country club where people have to pay dues to be a part, wear a collared shirt, show up and say and do the right things to fit in. Instead, we need to keep it a welcoming house that's full of safety, security, and love with no locks on the doors and a place at the table for anyone and everyone who shows up. The forgotten, the dismissed, the overlooked, the rejected, the outcast, the faithful, the struggling, the put together and the pulled apart. This is the kingdom of God. It's not a country club. It's a home that's open to those who will receive it. Let that be true of us. As a people, as a community. This is the kingdom that he is building. And so Mike represents this ninth and 11 hour workers who show up What Mike needed was to know love. He didn't need to be viewed through the lens of his past and through his mistakes. He knew all of that. He was dealing with all of that. We were walking through that. He needed to be viewed through the lens of who God had made him to be, a person with dignity, a person with value, with worth, a living, breathing image bearer of God and nothing less. The 11th hour workers, do you notice what they said earlier in the passage? When, when uh, When the landowner comes and they're asked why they're still there, they say this. 
simply because no one hired us. During this time, day laborers were the least of the least, and they were taken advantage of often. Landowners would bring them into the field, they would work them hard, and then they would not pay them, and they couldn't do anything with legal recourse. They had no power. They're just simply there, and they're like, nobody hired us. You know what that points us to? They were the ones that were looked over. They were the ones that were undesirable. They were the ones that were uh, not the most hireable. And yet, Jesus, God, comes on the scene, and he says, I know who you are. I see you. I know what you've done. I know all your broken pieces. I know all of your family's mishaps. I know everything that you wrestle with in your heart, the things that you hide away. And I see you, and I still want you, and I'm inviting you in. And they get hope. And they get something better than that, this beautiful word called grace. They get grace. They get generosity. It's beautiful. To this group, God is saying, I'm inviting you in. This is to the refugee without a home, the boy or girl told to never be enough, the alcoholic dad who feels shame every day, to the worn out, the frustrated mom who feels guilty, to the teenager who thinks they don't fit in. Jesus sees you, he knows you, he invites you. And then Jesus wraps up and he responds. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me on a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Are you upset that your neighbor, that your friend, who you should be celebrating, gets getting, they're getting paid. They get to take care of their family. They get to be a part. You're upset now that they get what you get because you think you deserve more, but we agreed on this. Time to do a heart check. And he sends them on their way. And he says, the last will be first and the first last. And he hits home with what he said in the previous chapter. So here's the point. Ready for it? <coughs> Paul said in the 9 a.m. that the 11 a.m. had more energy. And I'm not feeling, no, I'm just, uh, here's the point. Here's the point. It's beautiful. It's for all of us. For the first group, for the second group. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. It's all about what we could not earn ourselves, what we could not merit. The owner didn't have to hire anyone. <laughs> he could have left them where they were. The same that God could have done with us. And it was his choice to be gracious with everyone. He could have left them all standing around in the marketplace, and yet he shows them grace. David Platt says this. He says, God doesn't owe us salvation for something we've done. He gives us salvation despite everything we've done. No matter who you are, no matter how much good we've done, we are completely undeserving of God's kindness and generosity, and we don't have to try to stack up all our good and prove it to God. This doesn't mean we shouldn't do good, we shouldn't serve, we shouldn't love, we shouldn't commit to God and his ways, but here's the key. Not out of simply following the rules to try to negotiate or get something with God because we're in a loving relationship with him and we want to go deeper with him and we want to know him as he wants to know us. We don't work for his love. We respond out of his love toward him and others. In God's eyes, there are no societal lines drawn. There's no measuring stick of goodness. We are all in equal need of the very same thing and that is unmerited, unearned favor, his grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reminds us of this. It says, for you have been saved by grace through faith. Just like the 11th hour workers, the 9th hour workers, the 6th hour workers who didn't know exactly what they were going to get from the owner, but by faith went to the field and worked, trusting that he would do 
the right thing. What they didn't realize is they were going to get far more than the right thing. By faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not from works, so no one can boast. R.C. Sproul says this, and this is going to hit pretty hard right at the beginning, but it's not to shame us, it's to remind us. If we were to try to list everything God owes us, it'd be the easiest task we were ever assigned. (laughs) One we could complete in record time. The truth is he owes us nothing except his wrath as a punishment for our sins. See, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we want what's fair when it comes to God, but thank God he's not fair. But he's overwhelmingly generous in offering us eternal life, a place in the house, in his kingdom, and in an incredibly diverse, beautiful family to be a part of that he's building. Now, this doesn't mean we can't be honest with God. This doesn't mean we can't be frustrated at times. This doesn't mean we can't take our request to him and be brutally honest. But that means we do this all within the construct and reality of the grace he's shown us, what he's already promised us and what he's fulfilled through his son. And so the big question here is, how is God, like the owner, able to be this gracious? And like everything we see in scripture, it all comes back to Jesus. In order for God to show us this radical generosity, it would require an equally radical sacrifice. You and I, we are all the 11th hour worker in this story. (laughs) Except for we didn't even want to go to the field to work. God showed up at the marketplace and he said, I don't just want to leave you here. I don't just want to leave you empty handed. I want to invite you in. But in order for him to make room in the house, he had to send his son for a time out of the house. And his son Jesus would leave and he would come and he would live amongst us, the day laborers, and he would take on everything that we should have taken on ourselves, All of our anger, all of our selfishness, all of our pride and thinking we deserve more, we deserve better. He would take all of it, all of our waywardness, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our addictions, all of our pain, all of our abuse that we've endured. He would take all of it and he would do away with it on the cross, but it would come at such a great price, this generosity, it's not cheap. He would give his very life. And so through his life, death, and resurrection, here's what Jesus does. He completely fills up the bank account of God's generosity so that God can pour out that generosity on anyone and everyone he chooses so that we can have more brothers and sisters in the family. And it doesn't stop with you and me. It's for all of our neighbors. It's for this entire community. It's for the people you go to school with that nobody has gone too far from God's grace. It is that big. His bank account is just as full and the same grace that he offers us instead of responding and saying, I deserve more. I don't know if this is fair. We can say, thanks be to God who gives me this grace and new life. And would you please give it to this brother and sister too? This is the response of the heart of the follower of Jesus as he continues to shape and mold and change our heart. And what it shows us is the gospel is not about rules, it's about relationship. Workers follow rules, children find a relationship. The big idea here, God is not in the business of hiring good workers. He's in the business of adopting wayward children. That's all of us. So a month in, to this relationship with Mike, by no less than a miracle, he decides to follow Jesus, just to just abandon all pride, all shame, all this, and follow Jesus. And so what we would see is that God would start to break that chain of addiction in Mike's life. We would buy him a ticket and put him on a train to head back to New Orleans, back to his family. 
And then about a month later, we got the sweetest letter at the church from Mike telling us that he had got a job at a hotel, that he had found an apartment to live in, that he was actively in a recovery program, and he was reconciling with his kids. Mike, this 11th hour worker, the outcast, the used up, the two broken, gets grace upon grace upon grace. He turned from his former life, he turns to Jesus, he repents, he confesses, he gets this new life. And one day, you and I will meet Mike in eternity, and not because of what he did, not because of what he did or didn't bring to the table or who he was in society, but because God would take Mike, the last, and by his grace, make him first, that he would have a place to belong because God's love is just that big, his grace is just that good, his generosity is just that great. Amen? Amen. So where do we go with this? Well, for the Pharisee maybe that pops us in a, up in us or the first hour worker, let me just say this. This parable is not meant to shame us. It's meant to lovingly humble us, to remind us of how gracious God has been toward us, that it's not about our works. It's not about anything that we bring to the table. It's about him coming and finding us and giving us new life. It's meant to stir up a love and affection, generosity instead of judgment toward those around us. That we may even have the smallest hesitation to see as worthy of God's kindness and grace. Generosity over judgment. It's also meant to remind us of how much we need grace and how beautiful the grace is we've been given. So to respond in confession, maybe repentance, gratitude, and for the 11th hour worker, the Mike in us that has a hard time believing that we could belong in this family, that has a hard time letting go of the sins of our past that God's already forgiven us of or the things we still wrestle with, believing that he could really love us that much, as much as everyone else, to show us that much grace, be just that kind, just that generous. This is meant to assure us that we don't have to work for his love and acceptance, that God's grace really is that deep and that wide. And for all of us, where do we go? We go to the same place. This means that we shouldn't hold ourselves too highly, but we also, at the same time, shouldn't drop our heads in shame. We all need to go to the same place, and that is the foot of the cross. Looking up to Jesus. A place to confess. A place to rest. A place to repent. A place to find peace a place to go time and time and time again to be reminded of what he did for us and to renew our hearts for him and for others. Grace upon grace upon grace. Thank goodness God is not in the business of hiring good workers. He's in the business of adopting wayward children. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for this word. May you draw us to yourself wherever you find us today for those who hesitate to have a relationship with you to hand over their worst, would you reassure that you give us your best to turn from our past, to turn from our sin, to turn to you. God, for the faithless, would you renew faith? For the proud, would you humble? Would you work on the innermost places of our heart for our good, for your glory? All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.